that Nahum operates as a sequel to the book of Jonah. And our, our discussion tonight is going to be a discussion about repentance and uh, very appropriate the songs that we sang as well as uh, what Mike has just led us in in regards to the Lord's Supper. Because what I want us to be thinking about is, is ultimately a question like this, what happened? Now, I want you to notice what I mean. You have your Bibles, Nahum chapter 2, and we're going to be in chapter 3, but as I think the end of Nahum 1 fits with Nahum 2, so the end of 2 fits with Nahum 3. And I want you to notice that in Nahum chapter 2 and verse 13, you have just God simply say here, Behold, I am against you. And then notice he says it again in chapter 3 and in verse 5. Behold, I am against you. Now, my question is, what happened? Because when Jonah finally gets to Nineveh, we're going to be told that the whole city repents. And now we are standing about 100 to 150 years later, and God now comes and says, you're done. I am against you. And I'm not sure that there could be more terrifying words to think about God saying to us than to say, behold, I am against you. So as we take on chapter 3 and look at some of the key points that are given in this final declaration of prophecy against Nineveh through the prophet Nahum, I want you to be thinking about that question about Assyria and how is God at this point with them and what has happened that we had a wholesale repentance toward God. And now God says, your time is done. In chapter 3, I think the first seven verses could rightly be summed up as God is describing how his judgment against Nineveh is justified. In verse 1, it tells us that the city is woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and Bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of her deceitful charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and the peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve her? Where shall I seek comforters? For you, Powerful beginning here as God now rounds out this prophecy and says, I'm going to repay you for what you have done. And this is a picture that God constantly describes that I don't know that we always remember or, or deeply think about how God makes a promise. I'm going to repay you according to your actions. And when you think about that, that should be somewhat of a terrifying concept. I'm going to do to you as you have done to me or as you have done to others. God speaks like that all the time. When we come back to Matthew 
uh, in our Sunday morning study this fall. We're going to be in a a spot of Matthew 25 where God's going to make that point where Jesus is going to say, as you've done to these others, so you have done to me. And God is always reminding us about the idea of repayment. And he uses that not only in terms of uh, an individual, but also as a nation, as the nation of Israel has treated other nations and treated other peoples. And so God is going to do to them. And you are getting a picture of, well, since you did not have mercy, I'm not going to show you mercy. Since you did not have kindness and care then I'm not going to show you kindness and care that there is this warning of repayment. And you think about that in the New Testament where God says, you need to forgive others because I have forgiven you. And if you don't forgive others, then I'm not going to forgive you. And so God operates on that level of encouraging us to do what is right because God is a God of vengeance and he will repay according to our deeds. And so it makes us want to move toward God and follow the ways of God. And here in chapter 3, you see him saying, like in verse 4, because of all of these sins and your deceiving of the people, I'm going to now stand against you and show basically the sins of what you are. And I want you to then think about the words that are given there in verse 7. Listen to it, it says, All who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. But notice, no one's going to be upset when Nineveh goes. (laughs) We have been in the book of Revelation where we have read when the city goes. Chapter 18 says all the nations are going to weigh on. The peoples are going to be sad and the merchants are going to be upset. And everybody's going to be upset to see Rome fall. And here I want you to notice in verse 7 it says, who's going to grieve for her? And the, the rhetorical answer is no one. And the end of verse 7, where shall I seek comforters for you? There is no one who is going to grieve this judgment. I mentioned when we started Jonah as well as our study in Nahum that Assyria is one of the most cruel, wicked, vile empires to be on the earth. Everyone hated them because of how cruel they were. When they carried people off into captivity, they put physical hooks in the noses and in the jaws of people and dragged them out of the city. They were cruel in every way. And so now God says, when the city falls, do you think anybody's going to be sad? Not in the slightest. No one's going to care because of how you treated others. And that is a, an interesting principle that God gives to us about Can you imagine how people will think of us based on how we've treated them? And um, I'm, I'm kind of sad to say how many times I have encountered people who come to the end of their lives and based on how they have lived their lives, no one cares that they're going to pass away. And I unfortunately can count too many people where that has happened. I know of an an older lady and when she used to be here for quite a long time back, I don't think hardly any of you were here at that point, but (laughs) uh, she had family and children somewhere and she knew they were not going to come when she, she passed and she just kind of died by herself in some random uh, chaplain at the hospice, basically 
spent five minutes and presided over her and gave a blessing. And that was the end of the story. And no one cared. And I always, when I see those things, I always think, what kind of life did you live that no one cared? What kind of life would you live where you would say, where am I going to find comforters for you? Who, who's going to be sad when you go? And so you see God saying, because of how you have dealt with others and treated others, here are the, the, the consequences. Here is the recompense that is going to come back upon you. And so the question of verse 7 is thought-provoking as this wicked nation greatly deserves judgment. Now, before we move to the next section, I again want to bring back the original question. What happened? This is a city that has turned back to God in the days of Jonah. And here now we have saying, nobody's going to care when you go. You, you've been so wicked and harsh and cruel, full of lies and bloodshed and evil. And no one's going to care when this city falls. What has happened? The next section from verse 8 to the end is really a picture of Nineveh's uselessness. That God wants to remind the people that it doesn't matter how strong you are, what a great empire you think you are. You are nothing before God. That's really the question of verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? That, that requires a little bit of history. The reason Thebes is used is Assyria had gone all the way down to Egypt and conquered Thebes. And now God turns around and says, essentially implied, I let you do that. Do you think you're any better when I'm going to come against you now and bring your judgment? You thought you were so powerful, and yet you're no better than Thebes. And you're going to also suffer judgment because when God says, I stand against you, there is nowhere to turn. And I want you to notice that that's the picture that he draws. When you get to verse 14, he tells Nineveh, draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick wall. There will be fire to devour you and sword will cut you off. It will devour you like locusts. Multiply yourselves like the locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away, and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing of your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? What an ending to this where God basically says, you go ahead and get all your armies, get all your strength, get all your wealth, get everything you possibly can because it's not going to matter. You can go ahead and prep all you want, get the fort, get the mortar, get your armies ready. You can do whatever you want to do. You cannot resist God. And God is going to be victorious is as he comes against them. And he's going to use the Babylonians to do that. I, I don't think there's anything more chilling than the, than the words of how this prophecy ends to say your wound is fatal and everybody's just going to clap when they hear of your destruction. There is just going to be cheering because who hasn't experienced the unending evil that you have have wielded across the world. So now. Let's get to the big question that I want to think about. With such a chilling ending, how did we get here? How could it be possible 
to have a city that we are told from king all the way down to the citizens of Nineveh have a wholesale repentance. And only 100 to 150 years later, now that city is going to be wiped out completely with none to save. And God is going to bring the justice that needs to come against that city. I'm going to call this and talk about the lesson is just the idea of a wasted repentance. Now, one of the things that might come to mind when we talk about what has happened, how could it be that their repentance did not stick? Why is it that now they're worthy of judgment after they had turned to God? Is it maybe the fact that they had falsely repented? Like, you know, they were sorry, they were upset. Okay, we don't like the words of judgment, but did not have a true turning to God. And you do see that warning in the scriptures. You do see people like that. King Saul is one of my favorite uh, examples of that idea. When you have Samuel having to tell Saul, you know, you've done wrong and you've sinned. And you have Saul basically say, oh, I'm sorry. And now let's just carry on. <laughs> you know, I, I, what does it take to just get rid of the consequences? What do I have to say to get over this? And, and you see that. And you see the Apostle Paul talk about that in Second Corinthians. Where there is a worldly sorrow that leads to death and yet a godly sorrow leads to repentance. And in the beginning, you can't really distinguish. They seem to be saying all the right things. They act like they're sorry. They say all the right words. Oh, it'll never happen again. But it's not a legitimate repentance. Now, I don't think that's the situation here. And the reason I don't think so is because when we read the book of Jonah, it says that God relented of the disaster that he was going to bring against Nineveh. So if it was a fake repentance and they all were just like, oh, sorry, God would have said, no, (laughs) Uh, judgment comes. It is clearly a real repentance. So, again, I want to just press this question. How is it possible for a people to have a true repentance and then it be wasted and then it all fall apart to such an extent that is now going to bring the demise of the whole city? We could probably spend a lot of reasons and ideas speculating, but I think there are two big ideas that come up in the scriptures over and over again about why you see a repentance fail in the life of an individual as well as in the life of future generations. One is one point that God makes over and over again is a warning about how future generations are not taught to love God. I think it is interesting that you have this massive repentance of the people in the days of Jonah. And if we're sitting around a hundred some years going by, you have only one or two generations moving along. And now they're so far from God that they are worthy of judgment. And that teaching of repentance and a teaching of turning to God and loving God apparently didn't happen. And. Sometimes I think we're surprised by how often you read about that in the scriptures. You read about people like Eli, who's a priest of God. And yet we're told that his two sons were horrible. I mean, it's not just like, okay, and they're not really, I mean, they are described as awful to the point that God has to kill them because of how wicked they are. How does Eli, a priest of God, have children that are in such rebellion to God? 
You could think about how many times you have a great king over Israel and Judah. And yet what happens? A massive failure happens with the prior child. or I mean, with the next child. I mean, I'm always stunned that Hezekiah is considered one of the best kings that Judah ever had. He and Josiah appear to rank as one and one A of best kings when they are noted. And would you believe that Hezekiah's son is the worst king that Judah ever had? And you would think, how could that be possible? Hezekiah tore down the idols and and got people returning back to God. And yet it's the very next generation and it all falls apart. Maybe this one's particularly stunning is after the generation of the days of Joshua. As the people have come into the land. And they've seen the mighty hand of God. The people who saw the Jordan River part. The people who saw walking around the city of Jericho and the walls fall down after blowing trumpets. Their children did not know the Lord. That's what Judges chapter 2 and verse 10 says. The very next generation are so far from God that it ignites the days of the judges. And the days of the judges are a gruesome reading. Of the kinds of sins and wickedness that were going on among the people of God. I think it is important to note how often God tells us you need to teach your children why you love God and explain the faith that you have. That's what Deuteronomy 6 was. We, we kind of, if you've grown up in the pews, we know it really well. The idea of you shall teach your children when you rise up and when you lie down and when, you know all, all of those things of when you go out and when you stay in. And we go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want you to think about what he's saying there. The explaining of your faith and the teaching of your children to love God is a constant process. And it's really easy not to do that by evidence of the scriptures. How... Do the people of Nineveh, a hundred years later, have God come to them and say, you are done after their grandparents had wholesale turned to God? Except they weren't taught to love God. They were not given that message. And I want to remind us, as, as, as we know, but I think it's worth stating verbally as a reminder Teaching your children to go to church is not teaching them to love God and doesn't explain your faith. Telling your children, here's the rules of what we do. So don't steal, don't lie, don't. Isn't teaching them to love God and to seek him with all of our heart. It's not the same thing. And sometimes we miss that idea where we will stand back and go, well, they were at church every Sunday, so I just assume they got it. That's not enough. That's not even hardly the beginning. There is so much that we need to communicate to our children to teach them to seek the things of God. And if I could put it this way, to teach our children and show them the glorious beauty of the character of God. To show them who God is and why we love him and why we want to serve him. If you wait to teach, it'll be too late to teach. 
And it's amazing the kind of sponges our kids are. And we can have the tendency to think, well, I'll teach them later. And we have to teach them right away. And I want us to even think about even living a life of faith is not enough. You have to still teach them why you have the life of faith. You have to teach them why you've turned your life to God. You have to explain to them why you do everything that you do for God and why that matters. And I believe this is likely one of the failures that would have happened not only for Eli to his kids, for the generation after the days of Joshua, to the kings who had wicked kings after being a good king, to even here in the days of Nineveh after averting a massive judgment crisis in the days of Jonah are now thrown under judgment because of their wickedness. They didn't teach their kids. And I pray that we would teach repentance to our children. And explain to them why we walk with God. And number two, why else does repentance fail? Why are they in this situation that they are in? I think the writer of Hebrews puts his finger on it. It's in a flurry of words that I want to slow down and think about one particular point that he makes and explore this idea. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6 and verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, I I highlighted it on the screen. I want you to think about this phrase that's stated here. We need to leave the elementary teachings and go on to maturity. And notice one of the things that he says you need to go on from. Laying a foundation of repentance over and over and over again. Ooh, that was frightening. <laughs> All right, that, that's when the emergency lights flash right into your eyes. Oh. <laughs> you just see purple. <laughs> Blink that one out for a second. Mm. Not laying again a foundation of repentance. Well, that all turned off too. All right, it's thinking about it. Yay. All right. Why does the writer say this? You know, sometimes you think about the pictures of what's given here. I'm always amazed that one of the things that he describes is the elementary principles that we need to move on from is the idea of washings and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. But one of them that is so fascinating to me is he says, you need to go on to maturity about not laying again the foundation of repentance, that that there is a problem that happens and that what happens is this. There is a true repentance But nothing else happens. To state that another way, there's no life change. The repentance just stalls. They are truly convicted. They truly turn their heart to God just as much as in Nineveh in the days of Jonah. They truly are turning to God. And yet what happens? Well, what happens is if you don't move forward with God, what inevitably happens is you return to your prior behaviors. 
And that's what you're seeing with Nineveh. Here is God saying, you're acting just like you used to act. And the whole world's going to be cheering when you're finally gone. Because you've picked up all of those habits that you had in the past. You're going back to the old ways rather than moving forward. And one of the things that is so interesting about the spiritual walk with God is there is no stopping. You are either moving forward or you are falling backward. There is no standing still. It is like that the way of the world is this hard current that pushes against you. And causes you to move backward if you're not pushing forward. I don't know if you've ever had to try to do that like in the ocean or in a river. If you don't plant your feet and just start pushing and digging, you're just flying backward. (laughs) And that's the warning that's being given here is don't keep laying a foundation of repentance over and over and over and over again. Lay that foundation and what do you say at the beginning of verse 1? And go on to maturity. You have to go forward. There needs to be life change because if there is not a life change, if there's not some hard decisions that we make, then you're going to go backward and it's going to keep happening in the cycle over and over again. And I think that's one of the hard things that we have is true repentance and then moving forward really means making some really hard life changes. And so often what I want to do with repentance is, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm going to change. I'm going to do better. It's a new leaf. I'm turning it over. Tomorrow's a new start. It's going to be all different. And then tomorrow is the same schedule of what I've always done because making that change is hard. And shuffling the schedule is hard. And cutting out the things that need to be cut out is hard. And this is, I think, the issue that is being talked about here in Hebrews chapter 6 that is exemplified in the days of Nahum as this prophecy comes. And in this way, then, our repentance is wasted. And that's what can be so sad, is our repentance is absolutely wasted because there's no movement forward. And Peter made a warning about that. It is it is a, a, a shocking warning. It's a passage you've probably heard that, It's jarring to hear Peter say this. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. This is the hard part. The last state has become worse for them than the first. How many times you read that and go, how can it be possible for the last state To be worse than the first. The first is you were lost. You're an unbeliever. How how in the world could you then come and, and escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then after you've done all that say now the last is worse than the first. Well there's a way there's a way that that's possible. I don't have time for the context of second Peter but. One of the things that he's pointing out is that you're dealing with a people who have turned to God in repentance. But now all of their fleshly desires and their sins are acceptable. Notice that's what he even says here. They are again entangled in them. In what? The defilements of the world. They escape. I think that's your genuine repentance. All right, 
I got to get out of that. I'm going to stop. I'm turning. And then what happens? Back to the same old thing. And he makes an observation and says, you all know why that's worse? Because you become self-deceived into thinking you're fine when you're not. Oh, I've escaped. And he goes, no, you haven't. You went right back to what you were doing. But you have this moment of repentance that becomes wasted because unfortunately we go right back to the same things that we were always doing. So let me end the lesson this way as we round out the book of Nahum and talking about repentance. And I just want to ask this. So so how do we move forward? If, If the writer of Hebrews is warning, don't keep laying the foundation of repentance, but move on to maturity. Or if we are looking at here in Nahum's day, how do we not fail like they failed? Where here's this generation that repents, but then future generations completely fail. And now they're going to be judged. And that's the end of Nineveh and the end of the Assyrian Empire. I think one good answer to how to move forward is just to think about what did those people do in the first century when they repented in Acts 2? And Peter tells them, you've crucified the Son of God. And they ask, what should we do? And Peter tells them, repent. Be baptized. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the very next thing you're told about what those people were doing is they're devoting themselves to God. Or to put it in the picture that we've been talking about, they start going forward. They start moving forward to maturity. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. For us, that's the word of God. They immediately give their time and their effort and their energy into knowing the word of God. They devote themselves to fellowship. It's been a while since I did that fellowship lesson. Please never read fellowship in here eating food together. That is not what fellowship is. That's not what God says. They, they got together, they heard the word of God, and they ate. You know that, I mean, I'm, I'm all in on that. I'd be no problem, but... Fellowship is a joining together for a common effort and a common goal. They are spiritually binding themselves together to do the work of the Lord. They are joined together in that effort. So they devote themselves to knowing the word of God. They devote themselves to working toward God together as a unit. They devote themselves to the breaking of bread. There is the memorial of our Lord and Savior. They devote themselves to remembering what Christ has done. Because as we talked about this morning, if we forget what Christ has done, then we will have a wasted repentance. We absolutely will go back to the old ways. And finally, devoting themselves to prayer. Let's devote ourselves to changing everything in the way that we are living that keeps us from following God the way that not only that we know that we ought to, but truly deep down, it is what we want. True repentance does want to change. And Satan likes to thwart that effort and make you wake up tomorrow and go back doing the same old thing you were always doing. And I encourage you today to make the hard changes. Because we're wasting that repentance if we go back to the way we were living and we remain under God's wrath. It's a sad book to see what Nahum has to say to those people. And yet you might remember how this book began in talking about it is a God who is giving comfort to these people. 
Because God has to bring justice for wickedness. God has to judge evildoers. And we don't want that on us. Let your repentance be true. And then bear the fruit worthy of repentance by making those hard decisions and hard changes so that your repentance is not wasted before God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for forgiveness for us for as many times that we have tried to start with you and end up going back to the same sinful things that we did in the past. Forgive us for how many times that we have put forward an effort to go forward and ended up going backward. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a a very strong, courageous, devoted mind to make hard decisions in our lives and make radical changes that need to be made so that we can get out of our lives the sin that clings so closely to us and remove every obstacle that keeps us from moving forward towards you. Lord, forgive us for the times where we have been in a spiritual coasting. We have not pressed forward to know you more, to seek you with all of our heart, and to be more devoted to you. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us of this picture of repentance that you have given to us, that it is your desire to not have to keep laying that foundation, but that we'd be able to move forward in maturity, that we'd be able to grow. And Lord, you have told us that you have given us the strength to overcome. You have told us, Lord, that you have given us your spiritual armor so that we are able to withstand the devil on that evil day. And so, Lord, give us that that effort and that devotion and that strength to put on your armor. And we pray that you would be with us, that we'd be able to defeat the temptations as they come at us that we would withstand every fiery dart that Satan throws at us so that we would be able to show you how strong our repentance is and may it not be wasted, but rather be the basis of our growth towards you. We pray this through your son and our savior that makes it possible through whom we have forgiveness, through whom we have mercy and through whom we have hope. It's through him we pray, amen. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to take this opportunity to have a true repentance before God. I hope that you will think about your life and imagine that you do not want to hear the words of God to say, I am against you because there are things that you willfully chose not to change. And let today be the day of change to get those things out of your life, to get those things out of your heart. And to truly pursue the Lord your God with all of your heart this very day. If we can help you in any way to do that, please let us know. And you can come forward now while we stand and while we sing.